Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure having you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Jen Rathburn, to discuss the duty of care risk analysis, especially with regards to healthcare and HIPAA with Terry Krasinski from Haloc Security Labs. Take it away, Jen. Thanks, Judy, for the introduction. Hi, my name is Jen Rathburn. I'm a partner at Foley and Lardner. And I've been practicing for almost 20 years in the area of data privacy and security. I actually started my career in healthcare, focusing primarily on HIPAA. And over the years, I've expanded to working in all industries. Um, I'm here today to talk about this podcast, and we're going to focus in on the duty of care risk analysis, otherwise known as DACRA. Today, we have Terry Krasinski with us. He is the founder of Haloc Security Labs, and he's a contributing author of the Duty of Care Risk Analysis Standard, aka DACRA. The DACRA standard has been incorporated into the Center for Internet Security Risk Assessment Method, CSRAM, and has prevailed with judges and regulators. Today, we want to explore what DACRA is and why you should care. Terry, welcome. Welcome. Well, first, I wanted to do a little bit of a background before we jump into DACRA. So as being a healthcare lawyer, uh, and many of you listening to this podcast are healthcare lawyers in this space, as you know, we've had the HIPAA security rule around for a long time. And when it first came out in the 2000s, we all were like, what is this HIPAA risk analysis of what we need to do? And really over the years, um, the OCR has really focused in on whether an organization has conducted a thorough risk analysis and what have they done with the results? What are the risks and vulnerabilities that come out of that risk analysis and how have they addressed that through a risk mitigation plan? In fact, I mean, this really is the foundational um, thing that a covered entity or business associate needs to do in order to be HIPAA compliant. And where we've seen this come in is that post-breach We know the number one thing that the OCR is going to ask for is please give us a copy of your most recent HIPAA risk analysis and what is your risk mitigation plan to address risk. So that's the backdrop that's been around for many years. And I've worked with many, many clients over the 20 years to figure out what do we need to be doing for HIPAA risk analysis. The OCR has actually even came out with guidance in a newsletter about what's the difference between a gap analysis versus a risk analysis. Are we just talking about gaps? Are we talking about analyzing risk? And I do think that many organizations either did it internally, the OCR has some tools available online, or they hired an outside IT firm such as yours to come in and do a risk analysis. And that's kind of how we've been going along for years, but nobody really knows exactly what we should be doing with a risk analysis other than the guidance the OCR has to follow NIST. So I'm so excited today to talk about really like HIPAA risk analysis 2.0 and what is DACRA and how does it fit into this HIPAA framework. So if you could just start out and kind of give us a little background about where did DACRA come from. So it it probably, since that great introduction, thank you, Jen. So if we kind of go back a little bit, 
in information security, let's say to the 90s, the world was very much focused on controls. And, you know, when the HIPAA security rule came out, organizations looked at it, they the first thing on there is a risk assessment. They promptly ignored that because it seemed difficult and they went right to the things that they were comfortable with, which were controls, right? So they put in controls. In fact, they even put peer groups together to talk about which controls they the peers had in place because they were really worried about like, well, as long as we're doing what everyone else is doing, we're probably going to be okay. So they got these peer yeah, groups. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> they started talking about all the controls they had in place. And then the consultants got a hold of this because they realized they could monetize somehow helping organizations with HIPAA compliance. So they did gap assessments, right? They skipped the risk assessment. They simply did a gap assessment between what is in the HIPAA security rule and what the organization was doing. And they said, you have a maturity or you have a gap in these specific control areas. And the reason why is it was easy for consulting firms to train, you know, groups of, of young college grads on how to go out and perform these gap assessments. And lawyers. I actually did that. It was part of my beginning of my career. It's like, you don't have this policy or procedure. Gap, 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 gap. gap. Right. So my profession, the information security profession, we've really done a disservice to organizations all these years because we weren't really following what regulators and what judges ultimately were looking for. So, you know, the, the judges from a negligence perspective, but regulators from the reason why the HIPAA security rule includes the risk assessment as the very first item, we have to kind of go back and trace our roots back to 1993. So Bill Clinton signs executive order 12866. We just had 12 years of Republican rule and everyone's worried that we're going to be overly regulated. So he signs this executive order, which 12866 at its core basically says that all federal regulations going forward need to have a cost benefit analysis, right? All right. So the office of management and budget interprets executive order 12866 as a risk assessment being required in all federal regulations. So we see promptly in the HIPAA security rule that it requires a risk assessment. And this is solely because of executive order 12866. But no one realized why it went in there. They just thought it was another control, perform a risk assessment. Then we move on to number two and three and four, et cetera. So what, what happened was uh, I started doing some litigation support about eight years ago for some of the largest cyber breaches on the planet to date. And as we're litigating these cases, it became really clear that what the judges were concerned about was way different than what we were basically prepping organizations to do. And so what, as an information security professional, as attorneys out there, everyone, they're very familiar with things like the hand rule and calculus and negligence, but as an information security professional, I'm like, wow, so there's this function, okay? There's and why these, are judges asking me about this? Yeah, like, care. Wait, so he's, he's, he's asking about negligence. He's not, he's in care that there's this encryption and all this other stuff, right? And that there's, there's SIM is in place and that they actually have multi-factor authentication. He's, he's going down a different route. And really what it comes down to is we, 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 as information security professionals, we didn't know what the what the law knew, what the attorneys knew, was that the function of negligence starting in you know 1947 with you know Judge Learned Hand. I'm sure all the attorneys learned it in college, but um, you know th- this foreseeable you know was the threat foreseeable or the harm was it foreseeable? What was the gravity of the injuries, and what would the burden have been to you to actually do something about it to reduce it down to an acceptable level? 
was sort of new for information security. We had never seen that before. And I would say fair. Most lawyers that are doing in-house compliance work that are the HIPAA lawyer in-house, et cetera, weren't looking at it from necessarily from that perspective. Because you got to remember when the HIPAA security rule came out, there wasn't a lot of breaches. It was more about how do we figure out the risks and vulnerabilities in our internal environment. So when people were doing risk analysis, I don't really think they were thinking as well about direct foreseeable harm to third parties in the same way the judges ask about that in the court. Well, it was only a few years ago that OCR actually started doing their audits too, right? Yes. I mean, we're talking less than 10 years, even though the HIPAA security rule came out in 96. So it took a while for organizations. Final in the early 2000s. Final yes. in two, yes. So then we started seeing breaches and we start because information became monetized, especially, especially healthcare information became monetized in the last 10 years. So now we see the breaches, we see the lawsuits, and then now we see negligence and we see fines. Even organizations that say, I'm high trust certified, I have this, it didn't matter because they weren't performing the risk analysis for the foreseeable harm that could have happened. And that was the big head scratcher, like the the aha moment, like, wow, there's this other thing out there. And so it, we were- And on that point, I think yeah. that that is, is really, really important because I would say as a lawyer, what clients ask me all the time is what is reasonable security? Yeah. What should I do? Just tell me what I'll do. I'll fit into a safe harbor. And we know that, you know, several years ago, Camilla Harris actually came out with what reasonable security was when she was California's attorney general. And she referred to CIS, you know, top 10, SANS top 10 is reasonable security. But I think it's really difficult for clients, not just in the healthcare industry, but any industry to really figure out where, what frameworks are we going to invest? You mentioned high trust, or are we going to be, you know, ISO, you know, what are we going to follow? Are we going to do, you know, NIST CSF? And we do know the OCR does track online, both with the NIST CSF framework and the HIPAA framework. But anyway, there isn't clear cut guidance to healthcare organizations. So in comes DACRA. Yeah. So the, the prep for this, so once we were doing the litigation support, we realized that there is this disconnect. So we started mentoring clients on how they could, because what we found is the, the, the calculus of negligence or the multi which then became the multi-factor balancing test for all the states. So they have, you know, every judge by law has their multi-factors, you know, was the harm foreseeable? What was the relationship between the parties? What was the gravity of the injuries? What could you have done about it within reason? So they have their factors they go through. What we realized is that looked a lot like a risk assessment. And if we tweaked a couple things in the classic risk assessment method, so there's you know threat times vulnerabilities, uh, we have a probability and impact calculation to get a risk score. If we tweaked a couple things, we could be meeting our duty of care, which would put us in really good regards with regulations and judges as well. So it's essentially a, a risk assessment. And when we use that term, it means HIPAA risk analysis because the, the marketplace really just says HIPAA assessment. But it's yeah. basically... Uh, a risk assessment plus duty of care to a third party. So it's not like you have to start all over from scratch. That's right. It's just adding on. It depends a, on what your risk assessment looks like. So yes, if you're only doing maturity models right now on your controls, well, that's a start because every risk assessment does have to model the maturity of your controls. But that in and of itself doesn't tell me where do I need to make investments in my controls, right? I have to do that based on risk. Yeah, or really provide guidance to the board of directors about where you should invest money. It's just a set of gap analysis or maturity schedule. So as we evolve this thing and, you know, mentored clients, hundreds of clients on this, this sort of duty of care concept, um, we had an opportunity to write the standard. And so that's where the, the CISRAM and duty of care risk analysis standard itself and the not-for-profit came up. And if you think about a risk assessment, 
If we do a couple things, we can allow it to meet duty of care. Right now, most risk assessments, they focus on the impact to, to an asset and to the organization. Well, how does this impact me? What are the risks to me, the organization? What's the dollar impact to me? And if you think about duty of care, we need to consider as our with our actions, how are we going to affect others outside the organization? So our risk analysis has to consider the harm to others outside of the organization. So that's number one. Okay. We have to we have to consider harm to others outside the organization, not just a score of risk to me or a dollar impact to me. In fact, I saw one risk assessment, large organization right here in Chicago, almost a billion dollars in revenue. As we we they said and they want us to perform an information security risk assessment. We said, have you performed any enterprise risk assessments recently? Because we want to look at the criteria, and make sure we're congruent. They said, yes, in fact, we did. And they show us the criteria. The criteria says we will invest in risk remediation as long as it doesn't impact the bonuses of executive management. <laughs> so, wow. So when, when you repeal that back, when you really consider that, that really is the definition of negligence, right? So. I'm only going to do something as long as it doesn't affect my pocketbook is not going to pass in the court of law. Right. So when we we revealed this, they quickly got rid of that and they replaced it with the concept of harm to others and and et cetera. So we need to consider the harm outside the organization. That's step one. Um, Number two, we need to define an acceptable level of risk. What we found is you've asked most CISOs or executive management, hey, what's your tolerance for acceptable risk. How do you define acceptable risk in the organization? And how do you think they would answer? Well, most would say, well, we sit around a conference room, we look at each risk, and we basically give it a thumbs up or thumbs down whether we're going to invest in it or not. So it's ad hoc. Or they do benchmarking up through the board, and the board ultimately makes the decision. But at the board level, even, how are they deciding which ones they're doing are still ad hoc? There's not a calculus or a rhythm by which they're actually deciding on one versus another that actually is going to pass the muster in, in front of a judge or regulator. So, so we have to think about harm outside the organization. We have to define acceptable risk, and then we have to consider the burden of the safeguard. So we call in, in traditional risk assessments, it's called residual risk. We, we wanted to do away with the term residual risk because inherently in the term residual risk, it says that I'm reducing risk, yeah. which is not necessarily the case. So we call it safeguard risk because the proposed safeguard that we want to put in might actually increase other risk in the organization, including a financial burden, by the way, right? Or I might solve the original problem, but I create another one. So take a doctor's office, um, for instance, uh, a a patient portal. Uh, We had an organization immediately implement a two-factor authentication because they didn't have two-factor authentication for the patient portal for doctors from home to look up patient records. And when they implemented it, it was a disaster because the doctors couldn't get access because they were using uh, uh, tokens versus some other form. And uh, patient care was affected. So the mission became really important. The mission was more important than having this two-factor authentication from a security perspective. So, But, but that's so important because that's what the OCR has said for years. Um, a difference with the HIPAA security rule versus the privacy rule is the security rule is scalable. There are things that are required standards, and then some things are addressable. But addressable doesn't mean not do them. It means come up with a compensating control. And that's exactly what you're talking about here, is that if you're not going to implement a particular standard or a control, at least you're documenting or thinking through the thought process of what is that compensating control and what is the benefit or burden to the organization. And that aligns right in with DACRA. 
Yeah. So the risk assessment, if we do it according to the duty of care risk analysis, we can use risk to say uh, of the required uh, uh, items, um, to what extent do I implement and how do I know I've implemented them enough to reduce risk to an acceptable level, not just acceptable to me, but all interested parties that could be affected or harmed. And then also for the addressable, which ones should I address and to what extent, or which ones can I justify not addressing because the burden is too high and the, and the weighted risk or impact is just too low. Can you give us some examples like what you've seen in courts or what you've seen attorney generals look at from the sense of, you know, when an actual, you know, regulatory authority or a judge is looking at, you know, this DACRA risk analysis, what do they say? What are they looking at? So. What they're, so we also perform um, uh, litigation support uh, for attorney generals for multiple states, right? So as they go after uh, class action lawsuits, multi-state class action lawsuits, they gather the discovery of information. The first thing we always ask for is the risk assessment because we know that the attorney general is going to be able to win the case if the organization isn't considering the foreseeable harm they could cause outside the organization. What is the mechanism by which they're considering the foreseeable harm outside? If they have a risk assessment, they might have a shot at it. If they don't have a risk assessment, they probably have zero shot at it, which we've seen case after case where organizations get fined because they don't have that proper risk analysis. I think that's really interesting and really important because I do not think um, a general healthcare regulatory lawyer is looking at a HIPAA risk analysis per se, from a litigation perspective. And so I think this not only is a combination of healthcare regulatory law and IT security, but it's taking in the litigation end. And for, for me, it really is HIPAA risk analysis 2.0. It's more of a comprehensive solution to help protect an organization, you know, post-breach to explain yourself to regulators. And I will say that the clients that I have represented, and I do it almost on a daily, weekly basis, you know, writing responses back to the OCR, other state regulators, I mean, clients that have a good story to tell is what you're saying is that we really really critically thought about what our risk is. We thought about not just our own selves and our own systems, but the harm to third parties. And we developed controls to do that. And we did an assessment in this way has been, at least in my experience, been been very effective. So when you think about it, when you're in front of a judge, it's not because you hurt yourself. (laughs) It's very true. Generally. It's generally because you hurt others. Yes. Right. And, And there's always, always a control that you could have had in place to have prevented the breach. So what the judge wants to know is, why didn't you have that particular control in place? And that calculus, this duty of care risk analysis is gonna be very, very necessary to show that we analyze the risk, we prioritize the risk. This one was even on our list, but it was deemed low probability or low impact compared to these other things that we had made and are continuing to make investments in. If you you, have another example of that. If you you don't have a story, you're just not going to. Yeah, you have no story. (laughs) (laughs) No, if you don't have the story for how to back up the risk analysis, you're just not going to get it. We do know that of several cases where the attorney generals, uh, upon receiving the the risk analysis and the discovery information realize that organizations were performing a proper risk analysis that consider harm outside the organization. And we know those cases were dropped. So the attorney generals have told us, you know, such. So we know that they're well trained up now on this concept. And then the word is spreading even among the attorney generals on 
on what to look for. And we know OCR is actually very skilled now in understanding the difference between a gap assessment, a maturity assessment, and a true risk assessment. A true risk assessment, meaning one that will consider harm outside the organization to, you know, to the EPHI. If an organization wants to have the best position to communicate to executive management on why they're making decisions on certain investments, if they want to justify in front of a judge why they had made certain investments, if they want to show a business partner, I'm considering the harm to you, if they want to justify to internal audit why we prioritize certain things, or if internal, internal audit wants to help prioritize their findings, the, the, the risk assessment and specifically a duty of care risk assessment will allow all these parties to talk together and, and communicate in the same language because the language we use in the risk assessment is not nerdy techie security language. It's what's your effect on your mission, your objectives, and your obligations or harm you can do others. You can have multiple missions, multiple objectives, and multiple obligations. So we've seen one research hospital actually have 18 categories of mission objectives and obligations because they had the hospital, they have teaching, and then they had research. So they have multiple things that they're driving towards. So this is in plain language that is viewable. In fact, I even have one organization that posted on the web, that, like, here is how we look at risk. This is our mission. This is our objectives. These are our obligations. And they post it right on the web for everyone to see. Well, that's fantastic. So that when, then, when clients want to do business with them or vendors or business partners, they can see how the organization operates. It's, um, it's like this corporate uh, uh, social responsibility effort that's going forward. When you think about it, when you really look at the, the details, they say, we're going to consider our social responsibility. Well, guess what? They already had a social responsibility by law. It's called duty of care, mm. right? So the reasonable person translates to duty of care for companies. And that makes sense. I mean, obviously, the technical security information um, you wouldn't be posting up on your website to allow a hacker to come in to... to, to not the vulnerabilities. Not, not the vulnerabilities, no. But yes, your posture with regard to risk. And, um, you know, I think that's an excellent movement forward. So, so let's talk just a little bit about how, how do you get this risk analysis? How can you use this framework? I mean, in sure. particular for organizations that are not familiar with... ISO, NIST, CSF, all these different frameworks. Like, how how would you use this in your organization? Yeah. So, for, first of all, it's it's all freely available as downloads. So there's a there's a standard which is DOCRA.org, D-O-C-R-A.org, and that's a not for profit organization that actually has the standard. But there's a detailed risk assessment methodology available at the Center for Internet Security. So we wrote up all. So it's this, all free. All free. Download it for free. You can go to the Center for Internet Security and look up CIS RAM, Risk Assessment Method, and you can download it. There's tools in there. There's spreadsheets, and there's a detailed, the most detailed step-by-step instruction, at least that we've been told, of any risk assessment method. The problem with most risk assessment methods that exist out there, including NIST 800-30 and ISO 27005 Risk IT, is that they're too generic. They don't actually give a detailed instruction of how do I perform risk. So it really leaves people kind of performing them in an, in an ad hoc way. So we give the detail instruction. You do not need to use the CIS controls to perform a risk assessment using CIS You can pick RAM. your own. You can, and we usually for healthcare, we would recommend uh, NIST 800-53 controls harmonized with this uh, HIPAA security uh, controls. They're a little bit too generic, so you mm-hmm. want to augment those with the uh, uh, 853 controls. So... Um, 
you can use a step-by-step instruction book and, you know, there are tools and things coming out later, but this is all free. You, you know, this people can go out there right now, download it, put it in, and um, there's training available too. Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. I've recommended to a lot of clients. I mean, the way that we get involved with clients is clients come to us and say, you know, what do I do about a HIPAA risk analysis? Like, as a lawyer, should I be involved in that process? How should I integrate so, with our IT team? So the, so the duty of care risk analysis, which is really interesting, it brings in legal and executive management in like no other because of the criteria piece. This calculated acceptable risk definition, which is clearly spelled out in the SysRAM download, it really involves executive management and legal and, and the team to decide on what is our definition of acceptable risk. So you're defining it up front. What is your unacceptable hit to your mission? What's an unacceptable risk to your certain objectives about profitability or being number one or number two in your space or your growth plans? And then your obligations. What's an unacceptable hit? Is it five records of PHI? Is it 100? Is it 500? What's your threshold? And that's all going to be dictated based on your size and complexity. And it's also, I mean, where we work a lot with clients is, you know, you go through the risk analysis process, you come up with risks and vulnerabilities. Some of them you'll accept. Other ones, you know, you need to close those gaps and you have to develop a risk mitigation plan. And if you're not going to be closing those gaps, I mean, you need to understand why, because what I see is post-breach regulators asking, well, this came up on your HIPAA risk analysis. You knew that this was a risk out there. You may or may not develop compensating controls. It definitely had a harm to a third party. I mean, it's, I work with a lot of clients to help them develop the story to make them understand what is per se required to look through acceptable risk, to do that under attorney client privilege. But I mean, you know, I, I think that the biggest advice that I tell, in particular in-house lawyers, is really work together with your chief information security officer, mm-hmm. your CIO. This is not a simple IT. We know for a long time now cybersecurity is not an IT problem. It is a risk problem. But they really need to come together in particular on the you know HIPAA risk analysis piece because, again, post-breach, number one thing that the OCR and other regulators are asking is we want to see that the risk analysis. We want to know whether you're a good or bad actor organization and whether you did the analysis. So, I mean, I really appreciate all the effort that, you know, you and your group and obviously others have done to try to bring this integration between, you know, legal and IT security. And I think it's a really valuable resource, a free one that's out there. Free. Um, So, we are already are required to do risk assessments. And if you do it again in this certain way, you're really going to get executive management, legal and regulators uh, real excited and judges, everyone on the same page. That's what we've seen uh, over and over on um, when you perform a proper duty of care risk analysis. It keeps everyone on the same page and it's business focused. So too many times we see these vulnerability assessments or gap assessments that get too techy. Executive management doesn't know how to read that. How do they interpret that? How do they make a decision on what to do on that? Mm. CEOs and board of directors tell me all the time, I, I can barely understand when I come and get the report on cybersecurity. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of people in those roles are older generation. They're not as familiar with technology. And I always say, well, the way in which I present it and talk about it is really what does this particular control do for you and how can it help protect your organization? But I think this type of framework really takes out the techiness to really communicate with boards 
and the C-suite on these issues. And I think it's just a, it's a whole new way of talking about it. Because let's be honest, most organizations have a million different security vulnerabilities. It's a sinking ship. You have to figure out where you're going to invest your money in. And you got to invest in the thing that's going to give you the best ROI for your dollar that's aligned to your mission. And, and no one expects an organization to instantly and simultaneously treat all the known risk once they're discovered. And that's sometimes a pushback, right? Well, I don't want to know what my my findings are because then I have an obligation to do something about it. Yeah, you do have an obligation to do something about it, but only those that are reasonable and you can prioritize those in a certain way that you can actually put them in over time. And, and I would say, though, too, that I, I, I many plaintiff's lawyers do know these risk assessments are out there mm-hmm. and they use them post-breach to try to prove an organization is negligent by the types of gaps they have. So I get a lot of clients say, you know, I get really worried when I do these because there's gaps that we may not be able to fill and there's exposure that's out there. Well, it's funny you should say that. So we've been brought in on a lot of post-breach OCR actions to perform an emergency DACRA risk assessment, the risk treatment plan then is used as the injunctive relief by OCR. Fines are delayed and OCR says, we'll see you in 12 months, make sure you're following your risk treatment plan that you put together because who knows better on which items to treat than the organization that just performed the risk assessment, a proper one. So suppose it shows the organization taking it very seriously, doing their due diligence. They want to make sure that, you know, they're back into compliance. Otherwise, you have an outside agency. What, what, how can, what control can they tell you you need to put in place? The best they can say is perform a proper risk assessment. Well, if you beat them to the punch and perform that risk assessment, even post-breach, you can take control of the actions and the injunctive relief if there's one coming. Like LabMD and the FTC's ongoing battle of what measures, what were reasonable security or not? Yeah, so that was complicated. But at the end of the day, what surfaced out of that whole case was the FTC and the federal government don't have a definition of reasonable to the extent that organizations can actually use and run with it. But also was never the obligation of the federal government or regulators to tell specific organizations, this is your calculus. This is your specific level of reasonable risk that you need to operate by. But now DACRA gives all organizations and judges now and regulators a framework by which they can actually run some calculus. That's what it's doing right now. It gives them a framework by which they can decide their own calculus. So at the end of the day, organizations can take control of what reasonable risk is. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm being very serious about it. I think this is definitely a game changer in the space because it's bringing together all parties within an organization to make a reasonable decision about where they're going to invest funds. Well, thank you again, Terry. I really appreciate this conversation today. I think it's going to be really helpful uh, to many organizations, not just within healthcare, but also outside. Go DACRA. Go DACRA. Go DACRA. (laughs) Thanks again, Terry, so much. Now I'm going to turn it back over to Judy. Thank you, Jen, and thank you to Terry Krasinski from Halox Security Labs for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. Thank you for joining us.